The first question, Michael, is uh, are there any rules to follow when doing Giri Pradakshina? Um, we, uh, I was asked about this um, uh, one or two uh, meetings ago. That is, the, the main thing is we... Um, we should walk barefooted. That is the that is the main um, the main restriction. And um, I mean, ideally, we should walk around with love in our heart because it is a it is when we do giri pradakshina, it's an expression of our love for our natural. <laughs> um, many people who do giri pradakshina do. Giri production of fulfillment of some desire. If we have desires, okay, it's better to ask our natural than to ask anyone else. But ideally, we should be do it without asking for anything except for, as Bhagavan does in this verse that we talked about today, we should ask for nothing other than his grace. Because when we ask for his grace, we, the implication is we are asking him bestow your grace in any way you wish. So we are not we we sh ideally we should not be going around for, for fulfillment of some specific desire. We should be going around in order to offer ourselves to him, to to surrender ourselves to him. That is the real devotion. The real devotion is not God. We if we treat God as a means to an end. If we treat God as something, someone who should fulfill all our desires, remove all our difficulties, we are not um, we are not loving him for his own sake. We're loving him for what we can get from him. So that is not the ideal way of expressing our love for him. So ideally, we should we should go around the hill. Uh, with pure love in our heart, wishing to offer ourselves entirely to him, not expecting to get anything from him, but uh, to give ourselves entirely to him, to let him swallow us completely. That is that that is the eight, that should be our ideally that should be our aim. That is not to say if we have desires, if we want to pray for the fulfillment of desires. To whom else can we turn? Our natural is our father and mother. So if we want something, we have to pray to him. But best is not to want anything except his love, except love for him. That is what we should be praying for. Um, <clears throat> so other than that, there are no uh, no restrictions. I mean, there are, it is Bhagavan used to point out, it is described in the Purana, ideally, one should go round like a a pregnant uh, princess in her last in the last month of her pregnancy, because she's a pregnant a princess. She's carrying within her her womb a future prince, perhaps a future king. So she has to tread very very carefully, and so that what that implies is we shouldn't be going round like we've got uh, rushing to catch a train. Okay, if we've got a train to catch. <laughs> then we may have to rush, but ideally we should um, go round not in a hurried manner. We should go round calmly and contemplatively. That is the implication of that. But the main thing is the love in our heart. That is the most important thing of all. I, I hope that adequately answers that question. The next question is, 
I am new to Bhagwan's teaching and to meditation. I have always been feeling the mountains as sacred beings, as places where God's feet touch the earth. Although I have not yet traveled to Thiruvannamalai, I have been trying to connect in my heart to Arunachala and its stillness. Who is b- before the beginning of time? I find that my mind naturally becomes calmer and I am drawn deep within as through the force of gravity. When trying to practice self-inquiry and question who am I, I have been struggling to keep my mind focused and I keep finding my mind referencing on something that is not I. How I use the word love and devotion, I feel for mountains to support my self-inquiry. Yeah, how do I use the love and devotion I feel for mountains to support my self-inquiry? Bhagwan mentioned that self-inquiry is for more mature devotees and surrender might be more appropriate for others. Please advise me on how to practice Bhagwan's teachings and to overcome the challenges mentioned before. Thank you. And when it is said that self-inquiry is for mature, more mature souls, only more mature souls will be drawn to this practice. So if we if we are drawn to Bhagavan, if we are drawn to Arunachala, we that itself shows that we have sufficient uh, maturity to follow this path. Because what attracts us to Bhagavan is the simplicity and beauty of his teaching, the directness of his teaching, and um, and, and the the Bhagavan's teachings in their truest and deepest form is silence which is the of which Arunachala is the very embodiment so <clears throat> the when you feel love and devotion for Arunachala in your heart where are you feeling that that love and devotion you're feeling it in your heart that means deep within yourself and who is feeling it you are feeling it so if you follow that love to its source to uh, where is that love welling up from? It's welling up from within yourself. So that follow that love back to the place from which it arises. That is the true form of Arunachala, the true form of Bhagavan, your own, our own real nature, that which is shiny in our heart as I. That is the source of everything, and that is so. But, Love is an essential ingredient in this path of in this path of self investigation. Without all consuming love, we will not be willing to surrender. We will not be willing to investigate ourselves because, to the extent to which we attend to ourselves, to that extent, ego subsides. So, the attending to ourselves is itself self surrender. That is, surrender in its purest form is self-investigation. Even before we take to the path of self-investigation, we can surrender to a certain extent by trying to surrender our likes, dislikes, desires, attachments, and so on. In other words, by trying to surrender our will. That is very good to do. So even when we take God to be something other than ourselves, we can try to surrender our will to him. But in order, we cannot surrender our will entirely without surrendering the one whose will it is, namely ego. 
Um, so, so long as we remain as ego, we have we we retain some will of our own. We we still have some likes and dislikes, some desires, some attachment. We cannot be free of them. So long as we arise as ego. So, in order to um, surrender our will entirely, we need to be willing to surrender ourselves. That's why the path of surrender that Bhagavan taught is not just surrendering our will. It is what he called Atma Samapanam. Atma Samapanam means surrender, self-surrender. We are surrendering ourselves. Because only when we surrender ourselves can we fully surrender our will. So the self that we have to surrender is this false self called ego. That is the false identification of ourself as I am this person. That is ego. That is the self that we have to surrender. And the nature of ego is to rise, stand, and flourish by attending to things other than itself, but to subside and dissolve back into its source by attending to itself. So to the extent to which we attend to ourself, we are thereby subsiding or surrendering ourselves. So if you want to go deep in the path of self-surrender, you have to sooner or later come to this path of self-investigation, because only by investigating yourself can you surrender yourself in a really deep sense so though bhagavan taught the part sometimes spoke of the path of surrender and the path of vichara as if they were two different paths initially surrender may be separate from vichara but the, 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 to go deep in the path of surrender the path of surrender has to merge in the path of vichara. We 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 can surrender ourselves. Well, we can surrender our will to a certain extent without vichara, but we cannot even begin to practice vichara without thereby surrendering ourselves. Because to the extent to which we attend to ourselves, we are thereby surrendering ourselves. So, um, we, we, if we really want to follow Bhagavan's path, if we really want to go deep in the path of surrender. The, the pinnacle of the path of surrender is Atmavichara. That is, the pinnacle of all spiritual paths is the path of bhakti. The pinnacle of the path of bhakti is surrender. And the pinnacle of the path of surrender is Atmavichara. So this is the ultimate bhakti, what Bhagavan described as parabhakti tattva in verse 9 of Upadesha India. That is, in verse 8 he said, Rather than Anya Baba. Anya Baba means Anya means what is other. So Anya Baba means meditating on what is other. The implication is rather than taking God to be something other than ourselves and meditating on him accordingly, meditating on him as a name or a form or something other than ourselves. Ananya Baba, in which he is I. Ananya means what is not other. So with the understanding that he is what is shining in our heart as I. We shouldn't meditate upon him as something other than I, but as I alone. So this is that what Ibarwa means by Ananya Baba is the path of self-investigation. So he says, Rabba Bamba Anya Baba, the Ananya Baba in which he is I, is the best among all. That means this is the this is the, the best of all spiritual practices, the best of all forms of devotion, the best of all forms of meditation is to meditate on ourself alone, to meditate on nothing other than ourself. And then in the next verse, in verse 9, he says, by the strength of such meditation, in other words, by the strength of self-attentiveness, 
being in the state of being, in Sat Baba, the state of being, which is Bhavanatita, which transcends meditation, that means transcends all mental activity, being in that state that transcends of being that transcends all mental activity, that is Parabhakti Tattva. That is the very nature of supreme devotion. So the, the purest form of devotion is to turn our attention within and thereby give ourselves entirely to God, who is ever shining in our heart as I. So um the the most <coughs> If we are to succeed in this path of vichara, the bhakti is is essential. Some of us, the bhakti develops only after we come to the path of vichara. For the fortunate ones, they come from the path of uh, of devotion and therefore very easily take to this path of vichara because they're already in a in a, a state where they're willing to surrender themselves to God. Only to the extent to which we're willing to surrender ourselves will we be able to turn within and sink deep into our heart? And regarding Arunachala, you say you haven't been to, you haven't yet had the opportunity to uh, visit Tiruvannamalai. Doesn't matter. That is the speciality of Arunachala. It's not even necessary to be in the physical presence of Arunachala. It's not even necessary to see Arunachala. Mere thought of Arunachala is enough to ensure liberation because Arunachala, is, though it appears outwardly in the form of a hill, he is what is ever shining in our heart as eye. So when we think of him, he draws our mind within and merges and draws it back in where he swallows us in the very depth of our own heart. If we are fortunate enough to go to have the opportunity to go to Tiruvannamalai, that is a very special blessing, but we shouldn't feel if we are not able to go. We shouldn't we shouldn't um, feel sorry for that because our natural is ever available to us. He's ever shiny in our heart as I. So mere thought of him is sufficient. I hope that's an adequate answer to that question. Um, there aren't any more questions right now. So perhaps we could have a few moments of silence or mm. something yes. you'd like to talk about, Michael? Silence is the best talk. <laughs> I talk too much. Bhagavan's teaching, Bhagavan, that is, Bhagavan gave teachings in words in order to point our attention back within. But the real teaching is the silence that is ever shiny in our heart. So silence is the best teaching of all. And the silence is not just silence of speech or silence of mind. It is the silence that is our own being. Actually, Michael, I have a question. Yes. When we talk about, you know, these different sheets or koshas, you've talked about them. Uh, yes. Uh, so, you know, there's sort of the food body. Uh, yeah. uh, there is then... Uh, the vital energy body, the prana body versus the anna body. Then you have, uh, is it the vijnana? No, uh, manamaya kosha. Manamaya kosha, that which is to do really with the mentality, with thinking. The, 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 the grosser functions of the mind, the perception, memory, um, thinking, uh, feeling, emotion, and so on. Yes. And uh, before that, it's basically do with uh, the breath, is it? The pranamaya? Uh, pranamaya. Uh, breath is the most obvious um, 
manifestation of prana. Prana means life. It's the, the whole, the, the, all the physiological processes that are happening in the body, they're all manifestations of prana. So it's basically, so, um, and uh, the Annamaya Kosha, the food body, that is what? Simply the gross physical the, the body? Physical, physical body. The body so, was formed out of food. Okay, so so that is really the kind of cellular body, if you like. Yes, yes. The, the sort of physical form that we have, yes, the cellular yes, body, the yes, kind of organic yes. body we have. Yes. Then we have all the physiological functions. Yes. The, the, uh, the entire gamut, what's called yes. sort of biology yes, and yes. Uh, all, all of that, which is a function of prana. Then we have all the aspects of mentality. We've got yes. uh, the, the sort of perceiving, uh, thinking, judging, uh, and memory, so on. and so on. And then it's the Ananda Maya, which is no. Then, then, it, then comes the Jnana Maya, which is the, the buddhi, the intellect. That is the, the more subtle functions of the mind, the the the, um, the judging, um, discriminating, reasoning uh, aspects of the mind. That is the Vijnanamaya Kosha. And then subtlest of all is the uh, Anandamaya Kosha, which is equivalent to Chittam. That is the, 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 it consists of all the Vasanas. And the Vasanas sprouted form it, uh, likes, dislikes, desires, and so on. And it's called Anandamaya because they're all uh, sort of aim at Ananda, a joy. Exactly, exactly. Because, well, all desires, ultimately, whatever we may desire, we may desire wealth or we may desire uh, learning or we may desire political power. Or we, there's so many things we may desire. We may desire to walk in nature, to enjoy beautiful scenery, to uh, listen to beautiful music. Whatever we desire, we desire it because we believe happiness lies in that. So the driving force behind all desires is the, is the fundamental desire for happiness. And that desire for happiness is our very nature, because what we actually are is infinite happiness. And it, it's our, the very nature of ourselves to love ourselves. When we rise as ego, we limit ourselves, and thereby we seemingly separate ourselves from the infinite happiness that we actually are. So as ego, we're always dissatisfied. So because as ego, we seem to be lacking happiness. So since we're lacking, we seem to be lacking happiness within ourselves, we assume the happiness is outside. If I, if I get a, a, a better car or a bigger house or a, um, or, or a more beautiful husband or wife or whatever it may be, if I have better children, if I have better pay in my job, if I, uh, if I learn more, if, I, if my football team wins the, um, the, the next match, we, we think that our happiness is going to be gained from things outside ourselves. But we're always disappointed because the happiness we're seeking is not just these, these little pleasures that we get when when our football team wins or when we get a, a pay rise at work or um, when we get a promotion. or These are just trivial pleasures, but these trivial pleasures are infinitesimal reflections of the infinite happiness that we actually are. So whatever desires we may have, however much our desires are maybe satisfied, supposing we desire money, 
Suppose me become a, a centibillionaire like uh, Jeff Bezos or this um, Elon Musk or all these centibillionaires. They're still not satisfied. They can never be satisfied because nothing can satisfy us other than the infinite happiness that is our own real nature. So as Bhagavan said, in order to, in the first sentence of Nana, in order to attain that happiness, which is one's own nature, which one experiences daily in sleep, oneself, knowing oneself is necessary. So we need to know ourselves. And for that, the principle means is this, is this jnana vichara, who am I? Would it sort of one way of putting all this, these five koshas, the five sheets, the five bodies, or sort of the five levels, yeah. or whatever the yeah, body yeah. would one way to say it is that that the ego, the grasping, is what kind of um, in in a way sort of uh, it, um, it actualizes each of these bodies and getting them to function in some way. For example. Uh, uh, see, in the case of the food body, of course, it's construction and so on, you know, and, and the fact that it's there functioning a certain yeah. way. Uh, the prana uh, is activated in terms of physiological functions. Uh, the lower mind, the manas, is activated in terms of our perceiving and so on, you know, yeah, yeah. W- whatever. And in all of these, avasanas, our desires are sort of working as well. Yeah. And then uh, the judgments, again, the buddhi is, uh, yeah. you know, our judgments. Again, it's all driven by. Uh, some kind of grasping in the end. I mean, we may also stop yeah. grasping, but all of these functions. And then finally, the anandamaya, the sort of uh, the kind of uh, the body of uh, bliss or whatever. It's really uh, it's activated much more directly. This is where the desires take their origin, in a sense. Yes, yes. That uh, this is the vasana striving for it. Yes. So, uh, so all of it is this grasping, the ego. Yes. Uh, you know, the sort of you know the sort of eye grasping, uh, the yes. self grasping yes. of the ego. Um, which is kind of a crystallizing or solidifying in these five sheets. Uh, if we yes. keep on grasping, it's objectifying uh, in terms of these five sheets. Uh, and then finally, you know, if we manage to stop grasping and yes. so on, then of course, you know, we shed these sheets and things like that. But but in each of them, the sheath is sort of a kind of sort of the basis, uh, the kind of aspect from which all these functions uh, sort of all these activities develop because of our grasping, its particular set of activities. Yes, yes. That is, Bhagavan said that um, ego is nothing but the false awareness, I am this body. But what when he talked about body, what he meant by body is not just this physical body. As he says in verse 5 of Uludunapadu, Udul Pancha Koza Uru. The body is a form composed of five sheaths. Because if we think about it, it's very obvious. We never experience a dead body as ourselves. It's always a living body. And we also never experience a sleeping body as ourselves. It's always a, a body that seems to be awake. Because it's a living body, the, the, the prana is implicit there in the, um, in the physical body. And because it's a body that is awake, in a, wake, in a body that is awake, the mind, the intellect, and the will are all working there. So all these five sheaths, we never experience any of these five sheaths without experiencing all the other four. So we experience them as one bundle. So Bhagavan refers to the whole bundle as body. And so and the ego is not any of these five sheaths. Ego is that which 
which ego is the abhimanam, that which identifies itself, which attaches itself to these five sheaths, as I am this body consisting of five sheaths. In in um Apalapatu, in one place, he describes it as a as a kshetra of five sheaves, in this field of five sheaves, in which the desires grow abundantly. <laughs> We've got a host of questions now. Good. <laughs> yeah, the first is from ego, everything else sprouts. So because we talked about ego, all the doubts have sprouted. <laughs> So the first one is, um, why is so much emphasis being placed on the mountain Arunachala? If it is the self, then so is everything else. Um, <laughs> when we talk about the self, we, we are talking about the, the, that this term the self is not actually, it's a, it's a mistranslation of the Sanskrit and Tamil words. But the word that Bhagavan used most commonly in Tamil is tan, which simply means oneself. Likewise, the Sanskrit word Atman means oneself. Though Atman is often treated as a noun, it is essentially a pronoun. It, it, it is referring to that it, everything is itself. So um, when we talk in its spiritual context, when we talk about Atman, we're talking about ourself, what we actually are. So when you say everything is ourself, in what sense is everything ourself? Uh, in some Upanishads, it, it is said, all this is Brahman. But Bhagavan um, analyzed it more deeply or explained it more deeply in Upadesha, sorry, in Uludunapadu, verse 26, what he says is, when ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence. When ego doesn't exist, everything doesn't exist. Ego itself is everything. That is, ego is the dreamer. When, when we are dreaming, what do we see? What is it that we are seeing as that dream? It's nothing but ourself. That is, the mind is dreaming. The mind is seeing itself as the dream world. So we are seeing ourselves as the dream world. So whatever ego is perceives, whatever ego, whatever phenomenal objects the ego knows, are nothing but itself. It is seeing itself as all these things. Um, so everything is ego. And ego. If we, if we as ego investigate ourselves, then we will find we are nothing other than that pure awareness I am, which is Brahman. So only in that sense, everything is Brahman, everything is ourself. Regarding Arunachala, Arunachala is God or Guru. Why does God or Guru appear outside? For the simple reason that our mind is outward going. So because our mind is outward going, it is necessary, though, though God is our own real nature, God is what is ever shining in our heart as I, he appears outwardly in name and form in order to teach us to turn back within. So the outward form of Arunachala is, is an outward manifestation of what is ever shining in our heart as I. If we have sufficient love to always attend to I, 
then the outward form is not necessary. But when our mind comes outwards, it's very useful to have an outward form to remind us to turn back within. So what does Arunachala, what does the form of Arunachala represent? It represents stillness, silence, mere being. Arunachala is not doing anything. It is just being as it is. So it is a symbol of that silent being, but it's our own real nature. And that is always shiny in our heart as I. So the real nature of Arunachala is our own real nature, that which is shy, that that fundamental awareness of our own being, I am. That is the true form of Arunachala. But because we look outwards, Arunachala appears in that form. Arunachala appears in the form of a mountain, also appears in the form of Bhagavan. Because the mountain, as Bhagavan revealed, that Arunachala is ever teaching through silence. But because our minds are gross, we are unable to understand that silent teaching. So Arunachala, in his immense compassion, having been here for, that, for millennia in the form of a hill, seeing that, they, that we are still too dull to understand the silent teaching he has given us, he appeared in the form of Bhagavan Ramana in order to tell us in words what he is always telling us through silence, namely, Turn back within, see yourself. I hope that is an adequate answer. It's probably not an adequate answer because the significance of Arunachala cannot be adequately expressed in words. To understand the, the real nature of Arunachala, to understand the significance of the outward form of Arunachala requires that is, to the extent to which we turn within, to that extent, we will understand the significance of the outward form of Arunachala. That, that is, we, in order to reveal its real nature, Arunachala has to turn our mind back within. So only to the extent to which we're willing to turn our mind within, will we understand the significance of the outward form of Arunachala. Bhagavan, who had turned his mind fully within and surrendered himself completely, he alone truly understood the greatness of Arunachala. That's why he sang these five hymns on Arunachala, in which he, through words, he revealed so much. But to understand those words, to understand what Bhagavan is saying in these verses of Arunachakshramlai and the other four hymns, we need to think very deeply about them. We need to meditate upon them. And most importantly of all, we need to turn our attention within because only to the extent to which we turn our attention within will our mind get the clarity to understand not only the surface meaning of the words of Arunachastud Panchakam, but the deep inner significance and implication of the words. Because Bhagavan is... When, when Bhagavan says anything, when he writes any poetry, he's always actually conveying far more than just the surface meaning of the words. So it's only to the extent that we go deep in the practice of self-investigation that we can understand the deep implication, the deep meaning of Bhagavan's words, whether his words of Upadesha, direct words of Upadesha, as in Uludunapdu, Upadesha, Undia, Anma, Bidday, Nana, and such works, or his, the, the more subtle and indirect Upadesha, but he gives him a form of these five hymns.
I hope, I'm sure that's not an adequate question, answer to your question, but I hope it at least points you in the right direction to understand how you can understand for yourself the significance of Arunachala. Uh, the next question is from Srini. Srini wanted to ask it himself. Are you there, Srini? Yes. Uh, Namaskaram, Michael. Namaskaram. Uh, my question is, um, I've been, I've been uh, contemplating practicing by Bhagavan's grace, uh, but more and more I see uh, this Maya is drawing me more into outward out, out life. <laughs> uh, by the time I realize it, it's it's coming to the like I spend most of the time in the day going into the worldly things, but at the end of the day when I see it, what did I do? It's all like. If someone is pulling me to this worldly things with all the work and family and everything, then it, it seems that I'm uh, somehow I feel that I'm not doing justice or I'm not doing the right thing in this life. Can you give some pointers and say, how do you, how do you get more into this? Uh, what is, seems to be, what is real than what seems to be real? Okay, right. Firstly, what is Maya? Maya is not something outside ourselves. Maya is our own mind. The ego itself is Maya. And everything that we see outside is just an expansion of ego. So ego is the Avarana Shakti, the, the fundamental form of Maya, which is the, the veiling nature of Maya. And that veiling nature gives rise to big shape of a projecting nature, so dissipating nature. So everything we see outside is nothing but a production. I mean, it's all, it's nothing but the thoughts of our own, that our own thoughts, that is, we as ego have projected all this. So the, the root problem lies not outside. It's, we can't blame our job or our family or anything else for our mind going outwards. Why our mind goes outwards? Because we have a liking to go outwards. It's the very nature of the mind to always be going outwards. So, all we can do when we follow this path is we can try our best to turn our mind within as much as possible. The nature, the mind will, the, the mind will not cease going out. It will continue go, going out, going out. But however many times it goes out, however many times it gets caught up in this samsara, even in the, even when we're drowning in samsara, the, the, the our savior is ever shining in our heart as I. So, we, we, however completely immersed in samsara we may be, the one thing that never leaves us is that fundamental awareness I am. So, we can all, it, it's all, always within, we always have that freedom to turn within and to hold on to our being. But in order to do so requires all-consuming love. And that that we can cultivate that love, that is Aranatya by his grace is ever giving us that love, but we need to become become uh, fit um fit uh, um receptacle for that um for that love. In order to do that, we must be willing to yield ourselves to that uh, that grace by turning our attention within and trying to hold on to our being. So if you ask any honest spiritual aspirant, true spiritual aspirant, they will say, 
day after day after day after day they are failing in this path. It doesn't matter how many times we fail. What is important is that we continue trying. So long as we are continue trying, we are making progress. Bhagavan often used to say, the only sign of progress is perseverance. So let us not be discouraged by our failure. Let the failure encourage us all the more to keep on trying, because the more we, the more we try, the more we will feel our failure. But the, if you were totally worldly, you wouldn't feel you were failing at all. The, the more you try to follow this path, the more you strongly you will feel that you are failing. So the fail, the, our failure is a good sign because it shows that we're trying. So do not be discouraged by failure. The, when the, our, all our failure to follow this path, that is, when we read Bhagavan's teachings, when we understand Bhagavan's teachings, it's so simple. It's so obvious what we should do. But why then aren't we doing it? Why are we still having so much taste to go outwards? Um, it, because such is the nature of the mind. So all we can do is to persevere in this path. So long as we are trying, we are moving in the right direction and success is assured. We will continue failing up to the last moment. Our very rising as ego is a failure. But at the end of this, uh, at the end of all this failure, success is assured. Success is when we finally surrender ourselves completely to his grace and allow him to swallow us. Until then, we are all failures, every <laughs> single one of us. But do, let that not discourage us. Let us keep on trying. The more we fail, the more we should be encouraged to try. Is this, is this ego coming out to the outside worldly sense, is it all created by the Shakti itself? Is it something that... Ego is the think... Shakti that creates all this. That, but is it that something... Shakti that creates all this is Maya. That is ego. <laughs> but it's the origin that, that is starting the ego mm. before the ego comes, rises into the outside. But the one that fundamental I am is there all the time. But yes. from that I am, it comes to the outside as ego. Yes, because what is ego? Ego is the false awareness, I am Srini. Yes. In that false awareness, I am Can that false awareness, I am Srini, exist without I am? That no. is, the essential ingredient is I am. So the reality of ego is Atmasarupa, our own real nature, <laughs> is I am. So however much we may be going outwards, that I am is ever shiny in our heart. So it's ever available for us to turn within and try to grasp it. Okay. It, it, so, it, it so we seems... are never away from Bhagavan. Bhagavan <laughs> is ever shining in our heart as our own being, as I am. But this ego forgets, ego makes us forget who I am. Who yes, is really because, I am. because that is we never... We never cease to be aware of our being. We never cease to be aware of our of, of 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 that we are. But what we what we forget is what we are, because what we are is nothing but I. So our true identity, as Bhagavan said, is ahamaham nan nan. Now, how do you say in Telugu? Na, na, <laughs> na, na, yeah. na, 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 na,
Okay, Nainu, Nainu. That which is ever shiny in your heart is Nainu, Nainu. That is, you are nothing other than I itself. It's the significance of both words. But that is seemingly obscured by this false awareness, Nainu Srini. <laughs> yeah, when, when I see all this Maya or when I see all these things, I, I feel like something is pulling me outward for nothing. It's like some kind of that something is nothing but your own vasanas, your own liking <laughs> to go outwards. How long is this vasanas has to continue? Is it like a whether you like it or not? You had to go through this vasanas until it's until it's uh, until, until we zero. until we destroy the root of the vasanas. The vasanas mm. will remain, but in order to destroy the root, we need to we need to to a considerable extent reduce the strength of vasanas. Supposing okay. you've got a very dense bush, in order to get rid of that bush, you need to cut its root. But how can you cut its root? It's such a dense bush. You, you, first, you have to start cutting the leaves and branches. Only when, you, when you've cleared away a lot of the branches, can you get up the root to cut the root. <laughs> so the leaves and branches of the vasanas. So we have to reduce the vasanas to a considerable extent in order to be able to uh, cut the root. But Correct. what is the means to reduce the vasanas? The same means, the only means to cut the root is, uh, is this self-attentiveness. Self-attentiveness is also the means to, uh, cut, uh, to cut the leaves and branches. Yes, same. Yeah. So Bhagavan has given us such a perfect <laughs> remedy. It deals, firstly, <laughs> to the extent to which we practice self-investigation, we are thereby weakening the vishaya vasanas and thereby coming close to cutting the root. And if Correct. we pers persevere in this path, eventually we will cut the root. Thank you. Thank you. But the more I go into the path, it seems very tough. But I can, I can see... It, uh, it will be. Because the more we go into the path, that when we first, when we first <laughs> read Bhagavan's teaching, it's we easy. get a vague idea. Oh, I need <laughs> to attend to myself. So we try to attend to ourselves. At first, we seem to be a little bit successful. But as we go deeper and deeper, we get a clearer and clearer understanding of what self-attentiveness really is. And the more we understand what self-attentiveness really is, the it's more we up. understand how far we are actually from being self-attentive. Even correct. to hold on to self-attentiveness for a, a split Moment. second is a great achievement. Correct. Uh, uh, first we think, I, mean. I, I meditate 20 minutes morning <laughs> and evening. I'm able to remain without any thoughts. I'm making good progress in this part of self-investigation. We are making good progress, or we seem to be making good progress, only because our self-attentiveness is extremely <laughs> superficial. The deeper we go, the more we will understand. Every, every moment of self-attentiveness is a great, is, is immensely valuable and is a great mm. achievement. It's no small thing to truly attend to ourselves. To go yep. deep within is, is a great, great achievement. So let us, let us not be discouraged by our failure. Let us continue trying, trying, trying. Bhagavan has assured us, if we try, success is absolutely assured. Because we are not alone. His grace is ever there. Correct. It's his grace, grace that is driving us to try. So, yes. but by trying, we are yielding ourselves to his grace. I'm going with the grace. I'm just praying for his grace. 
all the time. Yeah. Well, what else can we do? What else can we do? But, but <laughs> what is the best way to pray to him for his grace is Surrender. to yield ourselves to it by turning within. Yeah. Thank you. By Thank trying you so to much, turn Jeff. within at least. Thank you so much, Michael. Oh, okay. no Thank well, you, all man. thanks to Bhagavan. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Shalini. The next question is, uh, if Guru, God and the Self are all one and the same, can meditating initially on the form of Bhagwan lead one in due course to the Self? Thank you. Certainly. Because can you, can you think about Bhagavan without remembering the very purpose for which Bhagavan assumed that outward form? It was only to teach us to investigate who am I. So the very thought of Bhagavan will help us to turn our mind back within. That is, the purpose of the outward form of Guru is only to turn us within. We can see this very clearly in so many things. So many, Bhagavan exemplified this in so many ways in his life. For example, there's the story of Janaki Mata when she saw Bhagavan coming from uh, Go, the Gosala with just one or two attendants and no one else around, she thought this is a very good opportunity. So she approached him, she prostrated before him, she put her forehead on his feet and she held his ankles. And he looked down at her with a smile and asked, what are you doing? She said, I'm holding the feet of my guru. Bhagavan said, this body is perishable, these feet are perishable. But this is not... This form is not Guru. This, these feet are not the feet of Guru. The real feet of a Guru is what is shiny in my, your heart as I. Hold on to those feet. They alone will save you. But if you hold on to this form, this form is going to go away one day. You'll be disappointed. So, but, but very, Bhagavan, though it's natural for us to feel love for his outward form, he... Through that outward form, he's constantly reminding us to turn within, turn within, turn within. So meditating on his form is good, but when he, when, but to be, if we meditate deeply on his form, that urge to turn within will arise within our heart. We should yield ourselves to that because that is the working of his grace. So meditating on his form is good. Better than meditating on his outward form, meditating on his inward form, his true form, his swarupa, which is ever shining in our heart as I. His swarupa is our own swarupa. He is Atma swarupa, the very nature of ourself. Thank you, Michael. Right. Thank you very much. Right. <laughs> Uh, the next question is, is eating non-vegetarian food, uh, sorry, is eating non-vegetarian food a hindrance to this path or drinking alcohol? Yes. Um, Bhagavan very clearly said in, um, in the ninth paragraph of Nana, by mitta sattvika ahara, ahara means food or Generally, it's taken as food, but the actual meaning of ahara is what is taken within. So um, it includes the, what we eat, what we drink, even what we take in through the five senses is a, is a, also a subtle type of ahara. So as far as possible, whatever we take in, take into the mind or take into the body, should be 
conducive to a sattvic state of mind. That's what sattvika means. Sattvic means what is the, 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 the actual meaning of sattva. Sat is being. Tva means, is, is like the suffix ness in English. So sattva actually means beingness. So whatever is conducive to a calm, quiet, uh, peaceful state of mind, that is sattvika. So the, the food we eat definitely affects the mind. If you eat meat or eggs or these things that have been, uh, that are, uh, entail the killing of animals or the, um, or the doing harm to animals, that definitely will have a, 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 either a tamasic or a rajasic effect on the mind. Tamasic, it means it'll make the mind dull. Uh, rajasic means it'll make the mind restless. To, uh, in order to go deep in this path, we need a mind, we need the opposite of dull mind. We need a very clear, bright mind. And we, we don't need a restless mind. We need a calm, uh, peaceful mind. So having a sattvic quality of mind is, very, is a very great aid in this path. Bhagavan said in one place, uh, when trying to um, to uh, to know oneself, when the mind is under the sway of um, of uh, of tamas, is like trying to separate the fine uh, 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 silk threads of a silk cloth with a blunt crowbar. If you've got a blunt iron bar and you're trying to separate the, the fine uh, uh, threads of a silk cloth, it's almost impossible. You need a very fine needle to try and separate those threads. Uh, um, likewise, we need a very sharp and keen power of attention, not a dull mind. And trying to, um, to know oneself, when the mind is under the sway of rajas, of restlessness, of the activity, is like trying to find a small object in the dark with a lamp that is flickering in the wind. In order to find a small object, you need a steady light. Then you can find a very small object. So having a sattvic state of mind is very, very important. So whatever we can do to... Uh, to uh, cultivate a sattvic state of mind is very, very helpful in this path. The food we eat or whatever we take in through the uh, food or drink, the, the nature of that food affects the mind. If you drink alcohol, that makes the mind, that either, if you drink in excess, it makes the mind dull. If you drink in small quantities, it makes the mind very active, very lively, and you, you lose your inhibitions and you talk in a very jolly way and you think you're enjoying yourself. That is the effect of alcohol. All drugs have an effect on the mind. All foods have an effect on the mind. So we should eat those foods that will uh, conducive to a sattvic state of mind. That is very, very important. If we're serious about following this path, we will, ought, we, we, in the Gita, when Krishna talks about different types of food, about sattvic food, rajasic food, and tamasic food, he doesn't actually say, this food is sattvic, this food is tamasic, this food is rajasic. What he says is, those of a sattvic state of mind 
will be attracted to certain such foods. Those who are in a jassic state of mind will be attracted to those foods, uh, certain such types of food. And those of a tamasic state of mind will be attracted to other types of food. So the food that we have a taste in is itself an indicator of the state of our mind. So if we have a sattvic state of mind, we will be only uh, inclined to eat those foods that are conducive to sattva. If we have an inclination to eat meat or drink alcohol or so on, it's because our mind is, is, is to that extent, it is con it's already contaminated with rajas or tamas or whatever. So uh, if our mind is already um, uh, predominantly rajasic or tamasic, and you, that will in induce us to eat those type of foods, which will make it, the problem even worse. So even if we have an inclination to eat meat or to drink alcohol or to do to watch violent movies or what, whatever else, I mean, but there is so many things all around us that are conducive. Going to shopping centers with all these beautiful things that we can buy and uh, or watching shopping show programs on television, whatever it is, all these things that are drawing our mind outwards, attracting our mind to the world. These are all rajasic or tamasic so we should try to we if, if we want to make progress in this path we need a sattvic state of mind not just a sattvic state of mind five minutes a day we need our mind to be generally in a sattvic condition of course sometimes we'll be agitated and there'll be rajas sometimes we'll be in a dull state but 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 Generally, we want our mind to be in a sattvic condition. For that, as Bhagavan said, the greatest, uh, the, the, the best of all the niyamas, the, all the restrictions, is the sattvika ahara, mitta sattvika ahara niyama. That is the restriction of taking only moderate quantities of sattvic food. You can eat sattvic food. But eating in excess, that will have a tamasic effect on you. Any overeating will make you dull. So, so it's not only important, but the quality of food, the quantity of food is also important. So when Bhagavan advised this, he advised it for a good reason. So if we are serious about following Bhagavan's path, we will automatically feel inclined not to eat meat or uh, drink alcohol or anything that is tamasic or rajasic, that will automatically, uh, our mind will feel averse to such things. We'll be drawn only to eating moderate quantities of sattvic food. If we have an inclination to eat other types of food, that just shows the state of our mind and shows all the more importance for eating only sattvic food. So I hope that answers that adequately. Yeah, it does. Thank you. Right. I uh, and actually, uh, I mean, followed uh, Sri Ramana Maharishi and Nisargadatta Maharaj. So, and both they they both recommend I am, uh, which is beingness. Like, what is the I am? Is that some sense? Is that uh, I I I try to comprehend the I amness. What does that really mean? Can you please 
Right. Well, it's very, very simple. Um, Nisargadatta is actually a little bit confusing about this I am. So let's not consider what he said. Just think about what does the word, what does the term I am mean? Am means exist in that context. When you say I am, that means I exist. So I is the awareness. That is, what is, when we refer to ourselves as I, why do we refer to ourselves as I? Because we are aware of ourselves as I. So only what I is the self-referential pronoun. So only what is aware of itself can refer to itself as I. And let's not think about computers which you can program to say I. Though you can program a computer to say I, it's not aware of itself as I. So that's not really I. That's merely the word I, but when we're talking about I, we're talking about the actual awareness, but of our own being. So I denotes our awareness and am denotes our existence. Our existence and our awareness are one and the same. Bhagavan often used to distinguish I am from I am this or that. When we say I am this or I am that, I am... Uh, I am Sumit, I am Michael, I am whoever, that, that, oh, I am, even I am Brahman, you're, they, you're identifying yourself with something other than yourself. That is, Brahman is not other than yourself. But so long as you don't know yourself as Brahman, Brahman is a mere idea. So when you say, I am Brahman, you're identifying with an idea. So Bhagavan said, I am this or I am that is ego. It's you're identifying yourself with something other than yourself. Our real nature is just I am. There's no identification there. If at all there's an identity, it is I am I. I am nothing other than I. In other words, I'm only myself. So I am denotes our being. Nisargadatta, when Nisargadatta is confusing about I am, sometimes he talks about I, I am. He says, when I am comes into existence or uh, something that exists before I am or, uh, or beyond I am, that is all confusing because I am is our being. As Bhagavan said, I am is sat chit. The am is the sat aspect. Chit is the I aspect. Both, of course, are one and the same. That is, when you say I am, you're talking about the existence of I. Is I and its existence, are they two different things? Obviously not. So I am my existence. I am my being are one and the same. So I am, it, it, why Bhagavan used this term I am so often is to denote our being. Our being alone is what is real. What is false is our identity as I am this or I am that. I am Sumit, I am Michael, I am whoever. Uh, I am this body. That is, the, that is the false identification. So the identification is false, but I am element, that alone is what is real. So I am is, is our own being, it's our own fundamental awareness. But whatever else we may be aware of, one thing we're always aware is I am. In, in waking and dream, we're aware of so many things, and we're still aware of I am. In sleep, we're aware of nothing other than ourselves. We're aware of nothing other than our own being, I am. So the one thing that continues in all the three states is this fundamental awareness I am, our own being. In sleep, it remains alone without anything else. In waking and dream, 
it's mixed and conflated with this body, and therefore it's aware of so. So it seems to be aware of so many other things. So what is real in all? What is continuous is only I am. So that alone is what is real. That alone is what we actually are. That's why Bhagavan said, "I am I." That means our true identity is nothing other than our being, nothing other than I. So I am denotes our being. So we we shouldn't people talk about the I am. Thereby we are objectifying it, like we talk about the self, as if we're making ourselves into an object. I am is not a thing. I am is our own being. We ourselves are I am. I am is what we actually are. And I am is the one thing that we are always aware of, whatever else we may be aware of. You may be aware of yourself. I am sitting, I'm listening, I'm feeling tired. Um, I did. Ha- I worked hard today. Um, I've got many problems in my life. I've got to go back to office on Monday morning. All these things you're, all these things you're, superimposing over I am, but the underlying experience is I am. Whatever you know, who knows it? I know it. Whatever you uh, experience, who experiences it? I experience it. Whatever you do, who is doing it? I am doing it. So that I that, or I am, that is the, the basis, the, the adhishtanam, the adhara, the, the ground on which everything else appears. Bhagavan often said, I am is the screen on which the whole picture of this, of all, all experience, the whole picture of the world appears only on the, sc- the fundamental screen of that, on the screen of that fundamental awareness, I am. So um, we shouldn't um, take I am to be an object. It is what is ever shining in us, our own being. Uh, so in continuation to that, uh, Michael, yes. Yes. Uh, I, uh, so so when i'm speaking to you when you are when i'm listening to you yes and i am eating yes when i'm doing my office work yes so it is this awareness who is doing it's not anything else is that a wrong no, interpretation no. that's a wrong interpretation because what is what is listening what mm. is doing is that I that is aware of itself as I am summit, that is ego. The reality of ego is I am. So I am doesn't do anything. I mm. I, I am is a pure being. It's not doing, mm. it's just being. It's not knowing, it's just knowledge itself. Well, pure awareness itself. So the nature of, of I am is not to know anything or to do anything. It's just to be as it is and to know itself as it is, not to know anything other than itself. So when we know anything other than ourself, when we, when we feel ourselves to be doing something, I am sitting, I am talking, I am listening, I am this and that, that is all ego. So the pure, I am in its pure condition without any adjuncts, without anything added to it, without any upadis. That is our real nature. As soon as the upadis are mixed and conflated, as soon as you're aware of yourself as I am summit, I am seeing, I am hearing, I am doing, that is ego. Okay. Uh, and and this awareness, which yes. is aware that uh, Michael is speaking. Yes. 
is that awareness the I am? That is not the real awareness. That okay. is what is the real awareness is called chit. The, the awareness that is aware of Michael speaking or aware of anything other than itself is what is called chitabasa. That is ego. Chitabasa means abasa means a likeness or a semblance. So it's not the real awareness, it's just a likeness of awareness. So being aware of anything other than ourselves, being aware of anything other than I am is not the real awareness. But that seeming awareness, it's sometimes, Chittabhasa is sometimes translated as a reflection of awareness. Sometimes the analogy is given, the sunlight is the original light, but moonlight is just a reflected light. It is like the moonlight. Of, of course, uh, the limitations in all, in all analogies, but it, that, that is a good analogy. This mind, this mind cannot shine without the original light, which is the light of I am. But it's only in the light of the mind that all other things appear. Got you. In the pure sunlight, nothing appears. There's just the pure sunlight. The pure sunlight means the pure awareness I am. Only in the, in the dim reflected light of the mind does all this appear. Mm -hmm. Bhagavan sometimes used to say, but in a cinema, but you need to have the background darkness in order to see the picture. Mm. If in in old days, back in the 1920s and 30s, in India, cinemas used to travel around the country. They would they would come to a village, they'd erect a big tent, mm. and in the darkness of that tent, they show the picture. So Bhagavan said, if a strong wind comes and blows away the tent, mm. the sunlight will flood into the cinema. And the, the you, picture on the screen will be swallowed. Likewise, that's why he says, that in, in the first half of today's talk, when I was talking about this verse, I quoted two other verses of Bhagavan. Verse um, 31, I think. No, not 31, 27. He says, Sakalam and Virangum Kadiroliina, son of bright rays that swallows everything. And in in the first verse of Arunacha Pancharatnam, um, uh, so he is that which swallows everything. That is like the, the sunlight flooding into the cinema and swallowing the picture. So in the sunlight, nothing appears, just the sunlight. It's only in the dim light of the mind that all these can appear. So the darkness in which all these appear is the darkness of self-ignorance, which is what is called mind or ego. <clears throat> so it's not the pure light, it's a it's a dim reflection <coughs> of the original light. But the original light is always shining brightly in our heart. So if instead of looking outwards to see other things, if we turn back within to see ourselves, the reflected light thereby merges back into the original light and we lose ourselves in the pure I am. So even when we're aware of ourselves as I am Sumit or I am Michael or I am whoever, we are still aware of ourselves as I am. So I am is what is ever shining, but we are not aware of ourselves as we actually are. We're not aware of ourselves as just I am, so long as we're aware of ourselves as I am Sumit or I am Michael or I am whoever. Mm -hmm. Is that clear? It is, yeah. I mean... Uh... 
Uh, one thing is clear, right? Uh, I mean, a uh, lot of path to be tread. To yeah, be, yeah. I mean, it's, I'm quite far from. Uh, I mean, I. Yeah. So one one final like I mean, with all these like uh, duties that uh, you have, uh, your family life and your um, job and all the other commitments. And like, I mean, you, uh, so, and the people, those who are doing like eight hours a day, uh, full-time meditation, people like spending, like becoming a full-time monk, uh, spending their entire life. So does that mean like, I mean, people like me who is into worldly life stand a less chance or how, I mean, I know like Bhagwan kept on saying, like, it's easy for a worldly man to achieve, uh, uh, his selfless state, his original state, as compared to a person who is totally into this monk or uh, can you please enlighten that? I mean, because yes. what I feel is right. I mean, there's a lot of path to cover for me uh, okay. and I'm developing my own wrong perceptions, okay. conceptions. Yeah. One thing Bhagavan used to say, if you cannot hold on to self-attentiveness, in the midst of a battlefield, you will not be able to hold on to self-attentiveness uh, sitting in a cave in the Himalayas. Mm. Because the obstacle is not the outside thing. It's the taste, the liking of your mind to go outside mm. that is the problem. So people may sit in meditation for eight hours a day, but what is happening inside? Their body may be sitting erect, maybe ramrod uh, uh, back, and um, they may appear to be absorbed in deep in smudge. But what's actually going on in their mind? Are they actually attending to themselves? One of two things will happen. Either they'll be dwelling on thoughts, or they'll be going into um, what is called samadhi, which Bhagavan said is just manolaya. It's just a state like sleep. It's not, it, it, sleep is just one kind of manolaya. Nivikalpa samadhi is another kind of manolaya. That's of no use whatsoever. True meditation, as taught by Bhagavan, is being self-attentive. For that, we don't need to close our eyes. We don't need to sit down. All we need to do is to have love, to be aware I am, to, to draw our attention away from other things, to attend to I am. That we can do even in the midst of a battlefield. That you can do when you're in your office, when you're working. Because whatever else you may be doing, you're always aware I am. Why we overlook this I am? Because we're more interested in other things. If we're more interested in, a, in I am, we'll be attending to I am. And the other things, that whatever work is we need to do will go on automatically because whatever actions we need to do in order for our prarabdha to unfold, we will be made to do those actions. So we need not be concerned about it. If it's your destiny to be a householder and to work hard 10 hours a day or whatever to, to support your family, that will happen anyway, whether you attend to it or not. So you can very well be the deeper we go in this path, the more we understand, but actually the obstacles are not outside. The obstacles are only within us. That's why Bhagavan said the true renunciation is not changing your cloth, is not shaving your head or growing a long mm. beard or any of these, these things. That is not the real renunciation. The real renunciation is turning the mind within and thereby 
sinking back into the heart, thereby surrendering yourself. That you can do whatever be, whether you be a grahasta or a sannyasi, it makes no difference whatsoever. That's why Bhagavan, some people uh, have said Bhagavan was opposed to sannyasa. That is not true. All Bhagavan said is it's not necessary. But mm. Bhagavan did say, just like for some people, mm. uh, the married life comes according to destiny. For mm. other people, the sannyasi life comes according to mm. destiny. But the de whatever comes according to destiny is what is best for us. So some people are suited to be sannyasis. Some people are suited to be grahastas. But that has got nothing to do with whether you're whether you're turning your attention within. Whether you're a sannyasi or a grahasta, you're always free to. You're all, just like the grahasta is where I am a grahasta. The sannyasi is where I am a sannyasi. Hmm. The problem is the 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 adjunct sannyasi or grahasta. What is true? is not I am a sannyasi or I am a grahasta. What is true is only I am. So hold on to the I am. That's why Bhagavan said, the grahasta who does not feel I am a grahasta is a better sannyasi than the sannyasi who feels I am a sannyasi. Because it's a false identification that we need to renounce. So if you feel I am a sannyasi, you haven't, you've just changed your renunciation. Previously, I was uh, John Smith. Now I'm Swami um, Adbudananda or something. <laughs> it's just changing me. It's changing me parties. It's not changing what the, the root problem still remains, which is the, full, the false uh, awareness. Understood. One, one follow-up, one last question. Why is it difficult to uh, adhere to God's will? I mean, because at times, is that again back to the the... Uh, because as ego, of mind. as ego, we yeah. have a will of our own. Yeah. But we, our will is what stands between us and following God's will. <laughs> so we need to surrender our will. But how can we, we can surrender our will to a certain extent, but not completely without surrendering ego. So if you want to surrender yourself completely to God's will, you need to be willing to surrender yourself to God. And you can surrender yourself only by turning within and holding on to your being. So long as you feel I am summit, you will inevitably have some likes, dislikes, desires, attachment. You can reduce the strength of them to a certain extent, but only to a certain extent. If you want to be free of all, uh, of all likes, dislikes, desires, attachments, hopes, fears, and so on, the only way is to cut the root. The root is the false awareness, I am summit. Understood. That is ego. Understood. So that is what is to be surrendered. Yes, we have to try to surrender our will, because without surrendering our will, we will not be willing to surrender ourselves. But we can surrender our will only to a certain extent without surrendering ourselves. So the surrender Bhagavan talked about is the surrender, atmasamapanam, the surrender of ourself. Atmasamapanam means ego samapanam, surrender of ego. A false identification. I am Sumit. I am Michael. I am whoever. Understood. Next question, Michael, is no matter how much practice I am able to do, I am not able to hold on to myself for more than even a minute. With this level of practice, is there any hope for me to kill the, the huge load of my Vishaya Vasanas? 
if you're able to hold on to yourself for a minute, my namaskaram to you. If I can hold on to myself for a second, I feel it's a great achievement. <laughs> that is holding on to ourselves. Though that is our aim, the very nature of the mind is to come out again, again, again. So even if we're able to hold on to ourselves for a split second, that's a great achievement. And then again, the mind will go out. And again, we have to bring it back within. So let us not... We can hold on to a superficial uh, degree of self-attentiveness. That is a partial self-attentiveness. We can hold on to that for a certain duration, maybe a minute or two minutes or whatever. But the deeper we go within, the less time we'll be able to hold on to that. Because th that is, if you <clears throat> have you, do you know a beach ball? A beach ball is big plastic ball. If you take that to the beach and you go to the sea, if you try to push the beach ball down, if you try to push it maybe an inch into the sea, you'll be able to hold it steady there for some time. Sooner or later, it'll slip away. But you may be able to hold it steady by pushing one inch. If you try to push it five inches, then it, it's, it's struggling to get this way or that way. But further you push it down, the more it will try to jump up this side or that side. So the deeper we go within, the less the duration. The, the more the duration, the more it's, it's relatively superficial. Both are good. It's good in the midst of other activities to try to hold on to at least a tenuous current, what Bhagavan used to call a tenuous current of self-attentiveness, that we should be trying to hold on to. But that will only be, that is, that is self-attentiveness or self-remembrance, but only relatively superficial. If we want to go deeper, then the duration will be less. But we need not worry about that. Even if we can go deep for even a split second, that is a big achievement. So. Our aim is to be self-attentive as much as possible. As much as possible means as deeply as possible and for as much duration as possible. So sometimes we there's a, a trade-off. Either we hold on to it uh, superficially for a longer time or deeper for a shorter time. doesn't matter. Both are good. It's good to practice both. Sometimes in the midst of our activities, try to hold on to at least a certain degree of self-attentiveness. At other times, when you're free of other preoccupations, try to go deeper within. Both are good. But do not be, do not have high expectations that you should remain in a, absorbed in self-attentiveness for two hours at a time. It doesn't happen. It's not the nature of the mind. If you can remain absorbed in that forever, for, for two hours, you'll be absorbed in it forever. So... Uh, every moment of self-attentiveness, we should consider as precious. And with that in view, we should try to attend to ourselves as much as possible, for as much duration as possible and for as much depth as possible. Sometimes it'll be more duration, less depth. Sometimes it'll be more depth, less duration. That doesn't matter. We have to just continue. So every, we should understand every moment of self-attentiveness is a big step forward. So it's a, we, we should value every single moment of self-attentiveness like a great treasure. So we shouldn't feel disheartened just because we're not able to hold on to it continuously for a long duration. That doesn't matter. It's as Bhagavan, when Bhagavan was asked, what is the sign of progress? He said, the only sign of progress is perseverance. So however many times our attention comes out again, 
we try to turn it back within. That's all that matters. So long as we are persevering in that practice, that's we are making progress. That's all that matters. And that is the way to deal with Vishaya Vasanas. So Bhagavan, if you're if you're concerned about Vishaya Vasanas, carefully read what Bhagavan has written in paragraphs. 10 and 11 of the essay version of Nana. There Bhagavan talks very, very clearly. He says, um, in the, he begins paragraph 10, even though Vishaya Vasanas that come from time immemorial, rising countless numbers like ocean waves, they will all be destroyed as Swarupa Dhyana uh, increases and increases. Swarupa Dhyana means meditation on our real nature. In other words, self-attentiveness, just meditating on I am. And then in the next sentence, he says, um, uh, um, without even giving room to the doubting thought, is it possible to destroy so many Vasanas and to remain as myself if it is necessary to cling tenaciously to self-attentiveness? So we shouldn't even think, worry about the Vasanas. If we attend to ourselves, the Vasanas will be taken care of. So we're not here to fight the Vasanas. All we have to do is to avoid being swayed by them by holding on to self-attentiveness. And then in the next sentence, he says, however great a sinner one may be, if Instead of lamenting, oh, I'm a sinner, how can I be saved? If one is steadfast in self-attentiveness, one will certainly be reformed or saved. That's the 10th paragraph. In the 11th paragraph, he says, um, so long as the Shayabhasanas exist in the mind, so long the investigation, who am I, is necessary. Um, uh, As and when thoughts appear, then and there, in the very place from which they rise, it's necessary to destroy all of them by vichara. That means by holding on to the self-attentiveness. Not attending to what is other, to anything other than yourself, that is veragya or nirasa, that is desirelessness. Not letting go of yourself is jnana. In truth, these two, veragya and jnana, are one. So not letting go of yourself is not um, is is itself uh, not attending to anything else. So these are one and the same. How do we avoid attending to other things? Only by holding on to ourselves, by not letting go of ourselves. Is the implication? And then he's so he's defined what is veragya, not attending to anything else. Then he said, just like pearl divers tying stones to their waist, sink deep in the ocean and recover the pearl from lying on the pearls lying on the bottom. So each one of us, uh, uh, um, with with veragia, that he's using veragia, he's using the, the stone that the uh, pearl divers tied to their waist. He's using that as an analogy for the veragia. So each one of us, with veragia, can sink deep within ourselves and recover the Atma Muttu, the, the pearl of Atman. Um, uh, um, and then he ends by saying, by, oh, then in the next sentence he says, um, uh, uh, until one attains Swarupa, if one clings unin- to uninterrupted Swarupa Smarana, 
That alone is sufficient. Swarupa smarana means self-remembrance, remembrance of our real nature, remembrance of I am. So even if you can't go very deep inside, at least if you can hold on to that remembrance of your of your being, of I am, that is alone is sufficient. And then he says, then he gives another analogy. He says, so long as enemies are within the fortress, they will be continually coming out. If as and when they come, one cuts them down, eventually the fortress will fall into will will will, will fall into our will come into our possession. What that means is the the enemies in the, the fortress is our heart. The enemies in the fortress are the Vishayabhasanas. If you're besieging a fortress and there are enemies inside, if they have no food and water, they have to come out for food and water, forage for food and water, otherwise they're going to die. Likewise with the Vasanas. The Vasanas can survive only by coming out and trying to draw our attention outwards. That's how they forage for their, the food that they feed on is our attending to things other than ourselves. So how do we cut them down as and when they come? By holding on to self-attentiveness. So if we hold on to self-attentiveness, as and when they come, they'll be there by cut down. And thus, the fortress will eventually uh, fall into our hands. Once all the bastards have come out and uh, been destroyed by our clinging to self-attentiveness, we don't even have to face the bastards. All we have to do is hold on to self-attentiveness. Thereby, the bastards will die. And then the fortress will become ours. So that is how Bhagavan taught us how to deal with bastards. The only way to deal with bastards is to hold on to self-attentiveness. By holding on to self-attentiveness, we are not allowing ourselves to be swayed by Babasanas, so they lose their strength. They become weaker and weaker and weaker. And eventually, they'll become so weak that our love to know and to be ourselves will overpower them and we'll remain as we are. So the same self-attentiveness that will weaken with Babasanas will eventually destroy their root, namely ego. So what this simple path of self-investigation, of self-attentiveness that Bhagavan has taught us, this is the solution to all problems, because it's the solution to the root of all problems, namely ego. But that is the, the, the primal problem, the original problem is ego. The secondary problem is its Vishayabhasanas. Both of these are dealt with by self-attentiveness. And if these problems are solved, all problems are solved. Because everything else appears only in the view of ego. Everything else is only a projection of the Vishayabhasanas. So all we need to be concerned about is ego and its Vishayabhasanas. And how do we deal with them? Only by, by ignoring them and holding on to ourselves. All right. Yes. The question is, when we die, <coughs> we die with our five sheaths? Question mark. So are we reborn with the same five, five, five sheaths, but are we born with a different body and different karma? When the body dies, obviously the, the, the anamaya kosha, the physical body, that is dead. Um, metaphorically, it is said, Bhagavan says in Nana, but when the body dies, the mind takes the, the prana and uh, it takes the prana away with it. What that means is, what actually goes from life to life is ego. Ego is not the body. It's not any of the five sheaves. Ego is that which takes the five sheaves to be itself. The only thing ego takes with it are its vasanas. 
Vasanas, that is the Anandamaya Kosha, or the will. Those Vasanas are the seeds that give rise to the other four sheaths. So when we, when we take birth again, the, the new body and um, the, the, new, uh, the seemingly new prana and uh, the, the new mind and new intellect, they're all born from the same seeds that the old one was born from. Uh, so in a sense, they're the same. In a sense, they're different. Um, but the continuity is ego, and it's the share of asanas. Um, uh, uh, about karmas, you ask about karmas. Whatever karmas we do in each life, but that is the karmas we do under the sway of our vasanas, those karmas are called agamya. Uh, under the sway of our vasanas means under the sway of our will. So the, the actions we do un, uh, in accordance with misusing our freedom of will, uh, those actions are called agamya. Those agamya bear fruit. The fruit is not experienced in this lifetime. The fruit of the actions we do in this lifetime are not experienced in this lifetime. So those fruit get added to Sanchitta. And the fruit, what, once we do an action, it's out of our hands. The fruits are entirely in Bhagavan's hands. So it's Bhagavan who decides for each action what is the appropriate fruit and when, where, and how, and whether we should experience that. So at the beginning of each life, before each body comes into existence, he selects a certain set of fruits of our past actions that will be most conducive to our spiritual development. Those are the fruit that he gives us to experience in the next life. So each life, the prarabdha, the destiny of each life, is the Whatever, in other words, whatever we experience in each life is a selection of the fruit of our past actions, but not just a random selection. It's selected by Bhagavan in such a way that will be most conducive to our spiritual development. And because in each life, we generally do far more agamya when we're able to experience the fruit. The sanchitta, the store, is an ever-growing store. So the, since we've had countless billions of lives before this, we've done countless billions of actions. They're all stored in Sanchitta. They're exhausted. That is, the, the fruit remain until we experience them. When we experience them, the fruit passes away, as Bhagavan says in verse 2 of Rupadesh Undia. So, um, we will never exhaust all the fruit in our uh, Sanchitta. That's not necessary. All we need to do, who is the doer of action? And who is the experiencer of the fruit? It's only ego. So if we kill ego, we thereby free ourselves from all action. We free ourselves from the agamya, we free ourselves from the sanchitta, and we free ourselves from the prarabdha, uh, as Bhagavan says, because none of these can remain without ego, because ego is the doer of the agamya and the experiencer of the prarabdha. And the fruit in Sanchitta are waiting to be experienced. So without the doer or experiencer, the whole uh, tree of karma gets destroyed. So the, the fruits of our past actions, in a sense, yes, they come with us, but they're not in our hands, they're in Bhagavan's hands. Once you do an action, it's out of your hands. If you, if an analogy is given for that. If you, before you shoot an arrow, you can aim it here or there. 
once you've released the arrow, it's no longer in your hands. So if you if you release the arrow and suddenly notice that there's a person standing where the arrow is going, you can't do anything to stop it. Likewise, once you do an action, you can't you can never undo it. The fruit is then in Bhagavan's hand. He will take care of the fruit. He will use that fruit in the way that is most conducive to your spiritual development. So fruit of action we need not worry about because Bhagavan is taking care of them. All we need to be concerned, and we need not be concerned about what actions we should do because the actions that we need to do will be made to do in accordance with Prarabdha. So the only thing we should be concerned about is not allowing ourselves to be swayed by our Vishaya Vasanas because they are what makes us do the fresh karma, the agamya. So if we don't allow ourselves to be, how to avoid allowing ourselves to be swayed by the Vishaya Vasanas, the only way is to hold on to self-attentiveness. By holding on to self-attentiveness, we are thereby not being swayed by the Vishaya Vasanas, so we are not doing agamya, whatever actions the mind, speech and body may do, is according to Prarabdha. But that's only if we are steadfastly holding on to self-attentiveness, which none of us are actually able to do, but we should be trying to do as much as possible. Yes, Alistair? Do we need to go to the subtle state of Anandamaya Kosha to eliminate Vasanas? What do we, what, what do next, what to do next? when the sense of I is gone. When the sense of I is gone, then there's nothing to do, because who is, who is the doer of any action? It's only that, that sense of I. Sense of I there means ego, the, the false sense of I, the, the I mixed with adjuncts. Do we need to go to Anandamaya Kosha? What does it mean to go to Anandamaya Kosha? That is, all these Koshas, or what we now experience as ourself. The Anandamaya Kosha is nothing but our will, our likes, dislikes, desires, and attachments. So where can we go to go to our will? We, we, that is, what we need. where we need to go is deep within ourself. When we go deep within ourself, both Vasanas will be constantly trying to pull our attention outwards. By going deeper and deeper within and not allowing ourselves to be swayed by the Vishaya Vasanas, we are thereby weakening them. So it's not a matter of going to the Anandamaya Kosha. We need to go into a depth of our own heart, not to Anandamaya, but to Ananda itself. We ourselves are Ananda, so we need to go to ourselves. We need to sink deep within ourselves. That is the way to uh, weaken and eventually destroy all the Vishaya Vasanas. We can destroy all of them uh, only by destroying their root, and we can destroy their root only by going deep within. To the extent to which we go deep within, to that extent we are weakening the Vishaya Vasanas. And the, weak, the weaker the Vishaya Vasanas, the stronger the Satvasana will become. The stronger the Satvasana becomes, the, more, the deeper we'll be able to go within. So it's better not to think of it in terms of going into the Anandamaya Kosha. We're going into our own heart, into our own being. Next one is, can, can you, Michael, recommend a sattvic cook, cookbook? <laughs> I know a very good cookbook. It's called Who Am I? <laughs> if you read Nana, there Bhagavan shows you how to cook ego. 
how to make ego well cooked and ready to be swallowed by him. We, we don't have to worry too much about sattvic food. Sattvic food is very, very simple. That is, any plant foods generally, not, of course, not all plant foods. Some plant foods can be dangerous drugs or whatever, but uh, um, generally simple fruits, vegetables, bread, rice, pasta, anything, any simple, um, simple, clean, plain food, preferably not this uh, processed food, and cooked in a simple way is sattvic. We don't, that is, though Bhagavan told us to eat moderate quantities of sattvic food, he didn't expect us to worry about what is sattvic. And we, we just need to have a general idea what to avoid. Certain types of food excite the passions. Those are rajasic food. Other types of food have a dunning effect on the mind. They are tamasic. Avoid those foods. What remains, what, what is conducive to a calm and peaceful state of mind, that is sattvic. Cook it in any way you like. Um, but, I mean, it, food it shouldn't be a big preoccupation for us. We, we are here not... We, 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 uh, we eat to live, not live to eat. So food, yes, we need, we need food in, in a moderate quantity. So let us eat any food that is not too heavy, not producing a dull state of mind, not producing an agitated state of mind. So we don't have to worry about cookbooks or anything. So long as we are cooking the ego in the manner prescribed by Bhagavan, by turning within, that's all that's necessary. That's all we need to worry about cooking. Okay, now next one. I, I had a question for Michael. The more I follow this path, the more I feel like my ego is enhanced in the sense that I'm becoming more vocal about what I do not like. It is harder to let be. Does this mean I'm doing something wrong? If you're really following this path, you should be becoming more and more indifferent to other things because your only concern should be turning within. We can't change the world. The world is, there's so many things... If we want to start indulging in likes and dislikes, there are so many things in this world to like and dislike. But is that the purpose of our life? Have we come to this world just to like some things and dislike other things, to desire things, certain things, fear certain things? No, we've come here for a deeper purpose. So we should be slowly, slowly losing interest in the external world and taking more and more interest in going within. So if we're, if we're, going with, if we're passionate about going within, we'll be indifferent to the external world. So we won't be... We will find the, the likes and dislikes will be dropping off us. The world is the way it is. Why should we bother about it? People may have annoying habits. People may behave in an obnoxious way. What is it to us? Why should we bother about that? Our aim is not to see the world, but to see who am I. So if we are truly following this path, we will... The, the, the likes and dislikes will be becoming less and less and less. 
whether we consider this path the path of self-investigation or the path of self-surrender. In either case, our likes and dislikes will be uh, becoming less. Actually, self-investigation and self-surrender are one and the same. But if we think of it in terms of self-investigation, our aim is to look within. So we are not concerned about anything outside. If we consider it in terms of uh, self-surrender, whatever appears outside is given to us by Bhagavan for our own good. So if we dislike things outside, we are disliking Bhagavan because it's Bhagavan who's given those things to us. So if, if a, supposing a person is causing us much trouble, rather than thinking, I don't like this person, they're giving me much trouble, just think, through this person, Bhagavan is giving me these troubles for my own good. Then you'll no longer feel a dislike of that person. You'll feel gratitude. But Bhagavan is working through that person to help you erase your own ego. I hope that is a clear answer to that question. Sure it is. <laughs> Next one is, what does Michael mean by depth of self-attentiveness? <laughs> Hang on, I'm aware I am, but how to go deeper from here? Attend to it more and more, and your self-attentiveness will deepen. Words cannot adequately express these things. It's, um, uh, yeah, it, it's, imp that is, we, we use words because the, the words are just pointers. But we, we, we need to understand, we each need to understand for ourselves what those words are pointing at, what is indicated by those words. So being more and more keenly self-attentive. Okay, if you want an explanation, we can, we can explain it in another way. Sometimes it's explained in terms of turning back towards ourselves. So now our attention is facing outwards towards other things. Our aim is to turn it 180 degrees back towards ourselves. In other words, instead of attending to other things, we want to attend to ourselves. So we need to turn our attention away from other things towards ourselves. So when we start off on this path, we may turn our attention 10 degrees towards ourselves. That is still fairly super, relatively superficial self-attentiveness. As we go deeper and deeper within, we are turning our attention more and more. So when we turn it 90 degrees, the other things will be receding more and more into the background. The more closer to 180 degrees we come, the less we will be aware of or concerned about anything other than ourselves. So this is what it meant by going deep within. That uh, that's the best I can do to explain it. But of course, none of these, no words can adequately explain these things. If you want to understand what it is to go deep within, try to attend to yourself. The more you attend to yourself, the more clearly you will understand what it means to go deep within. But we can never measure how deep we're going within. We need just to try to be more and more and more self-attentive. The more self-attentive we are, the deeper within we're going. And eventually, when we go within deep enough, we'll be swallowed by him. And then we won't know anything except I am, which is his real nature and our real nature. I think well, we've come to the end, Michael. We've okay. no more questions. Okay, good. Silence. We've come to silence at yes, last. Yes. <laughs>
Yes. <laughs> so, so where we all have to come in the end.